There, there is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed and bleed and bleed. What's this? Bleeding Ink, a podcast for indie authors with J.S. Leonard. What is up? This is episode six of Bleeding Ink. And my goodness, I am so excited to introduce my guest today. His name is Jeff Goins. He's a full-time writer who lives just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And this man has helped so many people pursue their purpose and their dreams. And I'm not even going to dally on this much longer. I do want to say we have five copies of Jeff's The Art of Work signed on the website, bleedingink.fm, ready to be given away. Enter today. Contest ends soon. And without further ado, here's my interview with Jeff. Hey, everybody. Today, I have a phenomenal guest. His name is Jeff Goins. And him and I met at the World Domination Summit. Um, we had an excellent talk there, very deep, very deep talk. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, we were at it for about four hours or so. Um, and uh, I, I asked him to be on my podcast, and he, he agreed. And I'm, I'm super stoked and happy to have him on. Um, welcome, Jeff. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Leonard. So, um, for those who may not know who you are, um, go ahead and tell me a little bit about yourself. I like how you say for those who may not know who you are, like which is like most people in the world. Uh, yeah, well, who knows? I mean, <laughs> um, yeah. So, I uh, I'm a writer. That's for the short definition. And I write books and help other writers and creatives. Uh, succeed in getting their messages heard, particularly using online marketing, social media tools like that. So I spend part of my time writing books, spreading ideas, and then part of my time teaching other people and how to do that. And that's how I make my living now. I've done that for about two and a half years. Before that, I was a marketing director for a nonprofit. Mm. Um, and I just, I love stories. I love connecting people with stories and ideas. I think I think that's where some of the most meaningful, lasting life change happens. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. So how'd you, how'd you get into this? Like, when did you once, you know, decide to get into writing? So I've always written, but I've never really considered myself a writer until recently, which I think sounds strange, but is actually common if you talk mm-hmm. to a lot of writers. They go, oh, you know, I dabble in this. I've written for decades, but I'm not a writer. And I think uh, a lot of us, whatever our vocation or our aspiration is, we attach a capital letter to it, you know. So the capital W writer for me was this, um, this this thing that I could uh, reach someday, but it felt unattainable to me. And I think I thought that a writer was somebody who made a living writing and and was very successful and did all these things. And when it when it became much more simple for me, and and I needed help in discovering this, a friend of mine was sort of a guide in this journey that I was on. Where at 27 years old, I was. Um, I was starting to get established in this career, working for this nonprofit, and I felt pretty good about it, but I had this itch. I had mm-hmm. this sense that there was something uh, to life. There was something more that I was missing out on, and I was afraid that in 10, 15 years, I'd be kind of approaching you know, middle age, worrying yeah. like I'd missed it. You know, So I was, I was having a pre-midlife crisis. I've been there. I'm in there. I think I'm there now. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the thing that kept coming up was writing, but I was really afraid to own that I was a writer. And I had this conversation with a friend of mine and he says, what's your dream, man? And I said, well, uh, I I don't know. I don't know that I have one of those. You know, I was, I was old enough to no longer believe in kid things and uh, experienced enough to see that a lot of my friends who were quote unquote dreamers, tried it and they failed uh, or, mm. they, or they flaked out. Yeah. And so I was really scared of saying, oh, I want to be a writer because it would, it would sort of put myself out there and it could mean failure. Uh, but I was also afraid that I wouldn't be able to commit to it, that I'd try it for a few months and then I didn't want to be criticized as, oh, hey, whatever happened you know, at, with that writing thing. And so um, I said, yeah, I, I, I don't know. And he said, he said, really? Because I would have thought that your dream was to be a writer. I mean, it was just so obvious to him. And I said, yeah, yeah, I guess. Like, I guess like, <laughs> I, I'd like to do that someday. I'd like to be a writer, but that'll probably never happen. And he just looked at me and he said, Jeff, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And 
as strange as it sounds, uh, the next day I got up and I started writing and I didn't, yeah. I didn't stop for an entire year. I did that. I got up every morning, 5am, 6am sometimes. And I would write for 30 minutes to an hour. Then I you know, go eat breakfast and get dressed and go to work. And that one habit of getting up every day mm-hmm. and writing by the end of the year, I had a book contract. I had this blog that people were starting to read. It was the thing that got me started. Yeah. But before I started to do, before I started doing the work, I had to believe that I was a writer. And what do writers do? Well, they sit down and they write every day. And I believe some people disagree with this, and that's fine. But I believe that activity follows identity. That you have yep. to have some sense that this is who you are before you can go do it. And that was my experience. Yeah. What I like about that is it reminds me of a saying that you're just one thought away of, you know, being what you want to be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to just click over to, you know, committing to that and, and becoming it. And really it is, you're seriously just one thought away. And as long as you pursue that thought and then maintain it, um, you know, you will become it. Um, so that's really nice. It's really nice to hear. So did you have like a different definition of a writer now, like pre-writer and how you evolved into a writer? Like what, what is your definition of like a writer? I saw somebody ask Anne Lamott this on Twitter. If you don't know Anne, she's an incredible writer, writes Mm -hmm. beautiful memoir and uh, has a great book um, about writing and life called Bird by Bird, which is a must read for any creative uh, artist and certainly writer. And um, somebody asked her this, and this is my paraphrase because I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not saving all these tweets in my phone or whatever. But yeah. I remember, I remember seeing somebody say, um, uh, you know, uh, how do you become a writer? I want to be a writer, and uh, you know, like, 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 what do I do? What do I need to do? And she said, uh, she kind of debunked this uh, this myth that I think we have with a, a lot of creative professions, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that you have to do something to earn this title. And she said, yeah. if, if you write, you are a writer. Mm-hmm. Now, now go get good. Mm-hmm. And so I have a very uh, blue-collar definition of what it means to be a writer. If you write, then you are a writer of some sort. Mm-hmm. Does, doesn't mean you're a professional writer. Uh, doesn't mean you're an author you know, of a published book. But it does mean that you, this is a good place to start, that you are a writer. I had another mm-hmm. conversation with uh, uh, Stephen Pressfield, author of a great book called The War of Art, another must-read for creatives. Mm-hmm. And I says, when does a writer get to call himself a writer? Like, when do you, when do you become this thing? Because I had the same question. And I had all of these mystical notions about when I would arrive someday and how it would feel and my life would be complete. And it would be this... Jerry Maguire moment. And instead of looking at a girl, I would look at my vocation, <laughs> you know, my, yeah. my desk or something and say, you complete me. And, <laughs> and I was waiting for that as if that, you know, was ever going to happen. And I asked Pressfield this and he said, you are when you say you are. And so this is a you know, fundamental belief for me. It's not about what other people will say about you because you can wait your whole life to become who you are. If you're letting other people kind of hold the definition of, of your identity in, mm-hmm. in their hands. Or you can believe, you know, kind of what Anne Lamott said, which is um, if you do it, then in some way you already are it. Now go get good. That doesn't mean anything about the quality of work that you are doing or are not doing. But for me, a writer is somebody who writes, whether it's full-time, part-time, for profit or nonprofit, uh, it's something that you are, therefore you must do. And uh, I have, you know, I've kind of pulled back the curtain, you know, uh, and seen what the lives of full-time writers, including myself and so many others actually looks like. And it doesn't mean you sit at your desk for eight hours and write. It often doesn't mean that you yeah. make a full-time living creating content, but it does mean that you write that, that at some core, you know, uh, identity, you know, base level, this is something that you have to do that you can't not do. I'm a writer because I can't imagine my life, uh, a life for myself where writing isn't an essential part of it. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the books you've written. Well, uh, let's, let's go back to the beginning, which, what was your first book and the first book that, so the first year I, I explained was I started writing and I published most of the content on my blog um, goinswriter.com. Cause that was a way for me to share my ideas and see what resonated. I believe that your voice is not just what you want to say, but what resonates with you that also connects, uh, with an audience. 
And, uh, you know, as a musician, um, I, I kind of believe in that idea of resonance that when you've hmm. got, what do you play? Guitar. Ah, I'm a drummer. We should get together and jam. We should have done it in Portland. <laughs> should have. That would have been the place. Anyways, go on. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, most of my life I thought I was going to be a musician. I even, uh, uh, traveled with a band right out of college. Mm-hmm. And what, what I realized about being a musician was I loved writing songs. That's what mm-hmm. I really loved doing. Uh, but anyway, you know, this, there's this, you know, concept in music, uh, called resonance or resonant frequency. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, not to get too geeky, you know, in terms of the science. Oh, get geeky. Well, I, I, don't, geeky. I don't, I don't know that much <laughs> about it, but if you've got two objects that share the same resonant frequency, mm-hmm. um, they, they'll, they'll basically vibrate, you know, together. And yeah. th- this is kind of what's being expressed when you see a, an opera singer in a cartoon shatter some glass. It's not that she's singing so loud or so high. It's that she's singing at a frequency that causes the glass to vibrate so quickly mm. that it shatters. I think that's what your voice, I think that's what finding your voice means. You find mm. that resonance that connects with you. That's true to you, but also is true to a particular audience. So, you know, blogging for me was that thing. And so um, the first year I wrote on my blog, the second year I wrote and published two books. The first book was called You Are a Writer. So start acting like one. And it was just a short ebook uh, describing this journey that I'm sharing with you here, uh, talking mm-hmm. about how if you write, you're a writer. Now, here's what it looks like to um, build a platform, connect with an audience, share your art with the world, and, and get published, which is every aspiring writer's dream and something that feels unattainable for many of us. And as I started to study what other people were doing, how you could use online marketing to um, you know, get your message out into the world, how you didn't have to become a sellout to do that, uh, I realized, man, anybody can do this if they really want to do the work. So I wrote that book, You Are a Writer, uh, to do that. That same year, I was contracted with a traditional publisher to write um, a second book, which was really kind of my first print book called Wrecked, which was um, uh, this uh, nonfiction book about the previous seven years of my life working with nonprofits and uh, really exploring the question of where do we find our purpose and, and what do we do with things like compassion and, and the needs of the world. And so mm-hmm. those are the first two. Was You Are a Writer a self-published book? Yes, I self-published that just as an, an ebook directly to Amazon and sold it to my growing email list at the time. Gotcha. And then that caught the attention of a publisher. Well, actually, what happened was this. Uh, my, <laughs> my, my blog, the first year, my blog caught the attention of a publisher and I was already contracted to write a book. But I, I made like $6,000 off of that book advance. It was, yeah. it was not enough to live off of. And sure. then, and I always thought, I never thought that I was going to make a ton of money writing. It was just something fun. So when the publisher said, we want to pay you to publish, I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. <laughs> and around that time, my wife and I got pregnant and uh, we were you know, planning on starting a family, but all of a sudden I go, Oh, like this mean, this means like, I've got people to take, I've got more people to take care of. And Mm. my wife and I were both working at the time. Uh, it was a dream for her to be able to stay home and raise our son. It was not financially possible. So I start writing wrecked, actually finish it in January of that second year. And then I go, uh, like I actually have to make money now. And so then I, wrote this ebook because I heard of people self-publishing ebooks and making a decent living online. And so I published, I wrote and published an ebook in a few months and that was your writer. So you're a writer. I wrote second, but it came out first. So the chronology is all messed up, but I wrote that book really because I needed to make some money. And the interesting thing about that is that book has reached more people than just about anything else that I've written. Interesting. And that's wrecked, right? that's your writer. Sorry, your writer is the first one. And that one reached many people. Yeah, because I've given it away because it was, um, yeah, it really caught on because it was very, very niche. And then Wrecked came out several months later. Mm -hmm. Um, And it looks like, I mean, you've got two other books, right? The In-Between and The Art of Work. Yes. Um, So let's talk about, and The In-Between came out after Wrecked? A year after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, let's talk about that book a little bit. That was a that was a basically a memoir that I wrote mm. um, about uh, all of those in between moments in life. It was me experimenting with storytelling, um, you know, personal narrative nonfiction, mm-hmm. and I love memoirs. It's really one of my favorite genres to read. Um, I love fiction, but there's something really compelling about reading this story and going, "Oh my gosh, this is true. This really happened. This is incredible." Yeah. And I love the ability of, of good memoirists like an Anne Lamott, for example, 
to help you see the extraordinary and the seemingly ordinary circumstances of your life. Uh, and that's what a lot of memoir does for me, not kind of the celebrity stuff out there. Um, but the in-between is a book about what do you do with all of those in-between moments in life where you feel like you're waiting for the next big thing to happen. Uh, and what if the next big thing is actually the thing that's happening right now? Like what if yeah. the, the slow times are the best times? And this yeah. was, this was a, an important lesson for me to learn and flesh out. That book was therapy for me because I was a young dad, uh, you know, fairly newlywed husband. Uh, and my life had re reached a place of stasis where it wasn't one adventure to the next. It wasn't one exciting thing to the next. It wasn't boring. It was just stable. And I was going, right. well, what do I do with this? You know, like mm -hmm. this wasn't adventurous as, you know, I was 30. So it wasn't adventurous as being 21 or 18 or, you know, gallivanting all over Europe. And so what does adventure look like and mean in this season of life when things start to feel a little bit slow and a little bit still? And that's what the in-between is about, how to make the most of those moments. Would you say it's about being present, just being present in the moment? Absolutely. And yeah. to go back to geeky, I would say it's a book about liminal space. Yeah. Which Got I, it. I, I figured you would you would know what that, that means. But yeah, it's mm -hmm. you know, all it, it liminal space is this it's something that, you know, storytellers like to talk about, but it's the things that happen in between, you know, the big inciting incidents. And, you know, in any story, like that's a really important part of the story is all the exposition and you know, everything that happens in between. Uh, sort of, you know, the the, uh, the the main conflict being introduced, the climax and the resolution, all that stuff is is not wasted moments. They are essential to the story that you're living. Right. Uh, but we miss, we tend to miss them and being present right. is a great way to not do that. Well, it has to complement the hyperbole, right? It has to, it has, to, I mean, it makes those mom moments poignant. If, if you don't have the, the, the space in between, then those moments don't matter. <laughs> but yeah. uh, there was, there was a, uh, just to you know, stay on this very intellectual level. There was a great uh, episode of Beavis and Butthead a long time ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, is, that is a truly intellectual show, and I'm not kidding when I say yeah, that. You're actually, right. Yeah, yeah. But they, they, were, they were watching you know TV or something, and 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 they were they were listening to this band play, and there was like this really like slow part, and I was like the da -da 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 part, and yeah. Beavis says to Butthead or the other, you know, one says the other, and he goes, he goes, man, like I, I hate this, you know, slow part. Why is this so stupid? And, and, and I want the, you know, I want the rocking part. And, and he goes, well, maybe, you know, this, the other guy says, well, maybe this, you know, slow part makes the rocking part rock that much harder. Mm. And that's, that seems to me what you're saying, Leonard. And I agree with that. Yeah. It's a, I just finished the book, The Practicing Mind. And mm. of course I can't remember the author now, but it's, it, it's getting to like a Zen place is really important to me. Like just being in the moment. And I always try and practice that. And the book sort of just really re like reiterated those values and, and kind of re-inspired me to, to come back to that. And, um, it's been really nice, actually. It's really nice just to, just to, you know, not project into the future or the past and just be, be here now and just appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and when, when did the in-between come out? Um, 2013. Yeah. A couple okay. years ago. A couple years ago. And then, um, the art of work mm -hmm. was your latest book. Yeah. And when did this, when did that release? March of 2015. Great. And um, let's talk about that one. This was the book that I kind of always wanted to write ever since I started this journey of, you know, thinking of myself as a writer, calling myself a writer and, and doing it. And, um, you know, when you start pursuing a passion, when you start, um, you know, trying to shake up your own personal status quo. And for me, that meant following a dream that I was even scared to admit that I had. Uh, people tend to notice friends, family members, and they ask you hard questions like, how are you going to make money or how mm -hmm. are you going to survive? And what if you fail? But then if you start to succeed or push through and persevere, they ask you other questions like, how did you do that? And maybe, yeah. maybe I should do that too. And I wrote this book initially, at least I started writing it to address those questions that I was starting to hear from friends and people that I really cared about, which was, here's how I think finding a calling, figuring out what your life's purpose is about, and then actually doing something about it. Here's how I think it works, not just based on my own experience, but based on the experiences of hundreds of people that I interviewed uh, over the course of uh, about a year. 
And, and then based on, I love biography. And so I just read all of these biographies of people who I felt changed the world in some way. Mm -hmm. Like it was just, they inarguably discovered something that most of us are missing out on. People like Walt Disney, Mother Teresa, clearly people who left a legacy, they weren't perfect people, but they did something that mattered. And it wasn't just about the money. It wasn't just about the fame. It was about doing something for the greater good that made a difference in the lives of other people. And I think, I mean, really I wrote the book because I felt like the way that we tend to talk about success and the way we tend to talk about, um, uh, you know, discovering what your life is about is either on one, one side way too woo woo or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just impractical or on the other side, um, it, it misses the mark, you know? So you've got a bunch of business books or personal development books talking about how to be uber successful when the reality is most people I know and talk to do not care about becoming the next Bill Gates. They don't care about becoming the next uber crazy billionaire. They just want to have a good life. They want to do something that matters and probably not go broke. And, yeah. and so, you know, the, the book uh, as a result became full of stories of people, um, that, uh, uh, are doing that, whose names you don't know. Some names you do know, but I, I found a lot of seemingly everyday, ordinary people doing extraordinary things with their lives and found all of the things that I felt like they had in common with with a lot of the greats that I mentioned. And and it also resonated with me. And so this is kind of, you know, the the middle path, I think, between, you know, you you have control over your destiny, you can do whatever you want, and you can, you know, be in charge of the world and be the next amazing thing. Uh, and you know, that was kind of one extreme and the other extreme is life sucks or, you know, it is what it is sort of a fatalistic approach and you just have to, you know, deal with it. Um, so it's, it's a book about how to find your unique path in life, not to, you know, uh, pursue somebody else's definition of success and, and discover work that matters to you and, and figure out how to do it and succeed at it. If there were one piece of advice you could give to someone who's trying to figure out, you know, their purpose, so their soul's call, if you want to call it that, um, uh, what, what, what's, what's a step they could take towards getting that information? I think you need to start with giving up on this myth that I call the you just know illusion. Mm. And the you just know illusion is the <laughs> thing that we hear people say on VH1 behind the scenes or <laughs> on some documentary, like, how did you know that you were going to be, you know, the, the next, uh, you two or something, or how did you know mom that you wanted to marry your, uh, you know, that you wanted to marry dad, uh, right. or, you know, how did you know that you wanted to be a fireman? Well, I, I just knew like, you'll just know. And, uh, I, I think that's not true. And, mm-hmm. um, in actually studying the way, um, people discover their, their life's purpose, uh, those people said it, it's not true. I don't, I didn't just know. I didn't know that it was the one thing. And I think this is what most of us are searching for. We want clarity. And in, in some ways it's elusive. Uh, I believe though, that um, it's not, you know, it's just like life isn't one giant mystery. One of the hardest parts of writing this book was to talk about something that is, I think, inherently mysterious process, your calling, your purpose, this, you know, this, this thing that is deeper than just how do I, you know, make a good living. Um, but at the same time, there are practical things that you can do. And I think the, um, the one step that you can take is to give up on that illusion and to believe, uh, what, what I think is, is absolutely true, which is that clarity does come, but it comes with action. Most of us are unwilling to start the process, uh, you know, making decisions that could really uproot our lives, um, because we don't, we can't see the end. And, and the reality is this is never the way a story works. You can't, if you can predict the end, it's a boring story. And I think of life as a story. And, and so if you give up on this idea that you're just going to know that you're going to get an epiphany or a voice from heaven is going to speak to you, or it, suddenly you're going to reach a state of nirvana and everything is just going to make sense. That's an illusion. It's going to take work. It's going to be hard. And all of that part of the process, all of those steps um, are essential in a way that is the calling. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I think giving up on that and then doing what, uh, Frederick Beekner calls listening to your life, you know, paying attention to the themes, understanding your life as a story is a really good place uh, to begin. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Would you say that epiphanies are possible still? I mean, I do, th- I do think epiphanies are possible. I think they happen in the midst of the work. I like how Stephen King talks about his relationship with the muse. 
and he says that, you know, my muse is is kind of this overweight blue collar factory worker who doesn't start working until I show up. Like I'm the boss, I'm the foreman. I show up and he goes, oh, I got to get back to work. Like that's the muse. You show up and then moments of epiphany, like we were talking about with the in-between, there are these punctuations. There are these definitive uh, moments in any story where you go, oh my gosh, that makes total sense. But it's usually uh, preceded by a lot of hard work, a lot of confusion, a lot of not knowing. I think Mm -hmm. most of us, and this, this is, Partly my opinion, partly based on just talking to a lot of people, interviewing a lot of people, reading a lot of biographies and stories where when you don't just listen to what people say to the press, but when you look at what they did, when you look at the life of Walt Disney, who most of his life wanted to be a cartoonist, but when you look at anything from age 15 earlier, he had no idea what he wanted to do. He was a terrible student. And then one day he's walking around downtown Kansas City with these new pair of boots that he begged his parents to get him for Christmas. And he kicks a block of ice and uh, realizes that the block of ice that he kicked has, has a very long nail sticking out of it. And it goes into his foot. Mm. And he spends the next two weeks lying in bed, uh, can't deliver the newspapers, which is what his, his dad was having him do you know, day in, day out you know, when he wasn't going to school. And while he's lying in bed, according to his biographer, Bob Thomas, um, he, he thinks about you know, a lot of things. We don't know what he, what he what we thought about. We don't, we don't get that sort of insight. But before he, he lay down in that bed at 15 years old, uh, a kid at the kind of the turn of the 20th century, he doesn't have much time left to figure out what he's going to do as an adult. He's going to, you know, stay working for his dad. He's going to try to go off and do his own thing as his brother Roy had done a few years before, or probably he's going to join the army. Army. He's not smart enough to go to college. He's not going to be a doctor. He's not going to be a lawyer. So what is he going to do? Well, while he's lying in that bed, He's thinking about these things. He's trying to figure it out because what we know is, is as soon as he gets out of that bed two weeks later, um, he decides he wants to be a cartoonist because it's the only thing that he's ever been good at, that he's ever been passionate about, and there are no other options. That's an epiphany. But how does it come about? In, in the most unpredictable ways. It's, it's, it's pain in the midst of doing something that is just kind of slogging it out, delivering papers for his dad, not really liking that, and feeling pretty directionless and, and I think that's where epiphanies come. They come in the midst of pain and confused <laughs> moments. And we go, oh, okay, now I understand. I, I have personal anecdotal evidence for that or to support that because that's exactly what happened with me. Mm-hmm. I, in my early 20s, was in a desperate, I mean, it was a desperate search to try and figure out what the hell I wanted to do with myself. Mm-hmm. And I had all these like disparate skills. And um, I remember I, I, uh, I, I happened upon this this movie poster. It's actually Spirited Away by Hao Miyazaki. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a it's a wonderful film. Oh. And something about it said, "You have to watch me." <laughs> and it wasn't playing in many places. I was at, I was in L.A. at the time with my with my uh, girlfriend, and and uh, so I, I it was only showing at the El Capitan Theater. I made the, I bought tickets, made the date to come back. It was coming out like only uh, like it was coming out in a month, and it was only in ten theaters across the country. And I watched that movie. I don't know what happened to me, but at that point I was like in a band sort of trying to pursue the music thing. And I was, wasn't super happy about that. And, you know, I, I, I was just, I really was struggling because I really wanted to give something to the, to the world. And I could not for the life of me figure it out. Cause anyways, um, so I'm watching this movie and I had this amazing experience where it felt like the, my insides just unraveled. And, um, about halfway through, I realized that I was like, this is what high, what Miyazaki had created with Spirit Away. Not that I wanted to be a cartoonist, not that I wanted to like, it was it's an anime movie, not that I wanted to become an animator, um, but I wanted to become a storyteller. Like I was like, I have to take the skills that I have and apply them to this, to this medium or to this mechanism of, of giving people some type of narrative. And that doesn't mean that the narrative would necessarily be in the form of a movie, but it's going to be some type of storytelling nature. And so I'm, you know, I was really good at, at uh, computers and I was really good at art. And um, I, I immediately decided to go to art school and, and, and study my ass off about, you know, fine art and, and really understand how to distribute and create experiences for people. Um, and it was really, I mean, that's, and that, sh- that shifted my entire perspective and built the momentum that, that led me to where I am today. And I think, the interesting thing that I was listening to you say was that I think we need to, we need to be in search of momentum. Like we need to find those moments where we're like, okay, now I feel 
the energy coursing in this direction and I need to ride this wave. Mm. And, and, um, that wave was definitely presented to me, I guess through an epiphany, but I think, you know, with Walt, it was probably the same sort of thing. Not, not that I'm comparing myself to Walt, but that particular moment in his life where he was like, I'm good at art and you know, this is, this is what I need to do. And, um, I find that, I find that very interesting. I find that very interesting. Yeah. Um, I agree. I mean, similar thing happened to me and that to me is very different from what I hear a lot of people say where they go, I'm just, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting mm. for that. People are waiting for moments instead of looking for momentum. And I think yeah. that's very, very different. Yeah. And, um, I love this quote by Parker Palmer, who is an activist and an author. And he says, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. Right. And, you know, my 20s, like a lot of uh, people, I think, you know, they're a time of searching. Sounds like the same thing for you, Leonard. But, you know, when you're 21, you know, by and large, you want to tell your life what you want to do with it. I want to be a rock star. I want to do this. And then inevitably what happens is you run into failure, you run into pain, you run into all these things. And if you are smart, it seems that... um, what you ought to be doing is listening in yeah. those moments. What is this telling me? Is this telling me something about what resonates with my soul? What doesn't, what I'm good at, what I, what I'm not good at, what brings me energy. And I think listening to your life is really asking three questions. What am I good at? What do I love? And what does the world need? How can I make that contribution? And when you answer those questions and you can start finding some intersection in those three areas, you have what lots of people call a sweet spot. And I think that is um, a really good place to start focusing if you want to figure out what, what do I really want to do? What am I really good at? And what, what is not just going to bring me happiness, but is going to make some sort of contribution to the world? Would you say that, um, you know, the, the, the saying, follow your bliss is, is a similar sort of approach to that? I, th- I think it is, but uh, only because you understand what that means. Um, mm. uh, you know, y- you know Joseph Campbell and you know that follow yeah. your bliss is, is, is part of the hero's journey process, which is full of failure. It's full of trials. It's, what I love about the hero's journey process is uh, the hero gets called and what's, what's the next thing that happens? There's the refusal of the call. Yep. As soon as I read that, I go, oh, wow. Like that's exactly what happened to me. My friend goes... Mm-hmm. Hey, you're a writer. I go, ah, oh, no, I don't, I don't know. I guess I'd like to do it someday. And then he goes, no, you are a writer. And I had to have a lot. And then I, and then I was talking to, you know, Stephen Pressfield and, and, uh, and he said the, you know, said the same thing you are when you say you are. And it was like, oh, and I, I started to believe it. And then eventually I started to do it and then I failed and then I got rejected. And, and then by the end of it, you know, you die and come back, yep, you know, you come back. Um, but I, I worry about the way that, People talk about following your bliss and following your passion today because I think they think if this makes me happy, therefore I have a right to do it. And I think that passion, as I mentioned before, is one of three elements or areas in finding your calling. The other two are skill and demand or need. Like what am I doing that's actually helping people? Now, I think that's all implicit in the hero's journey, but I worry that people are are missing that implicit struggle and I'm working not just for my own good, but for the good of others. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you really know Campbell, then you know that's all sort of implied in that. Yeah. I think uh, I was actually reflecting on this recently. And because um, I'm trying to like distill and, and give this knowledge to my kids. And I was thinking like, how do I describe success to them? Like, how do I, you know, get them on the right path? And I think, you know, th- there's this saying that I've been sort of thinking in the back of my mind. You know, it's really about, becoming good at providing value that other people can't <laughs> that that is really the, the key to being successful and um you know because providing value means there's a demand for it right because there's a need and um, becoming good at things that other people can't you know that's that's where you fit mm-hmm. um that's great man um so okay so you have the art of work and you've had you know these these four books out. So like what's what's next for you like what, what are you working on now well, you're cheating because you know what's next for me. I know. We spent four hours talking about it. We did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, I'm really fascinated with this question of, and I've, you know, the past couple of months, I've, I feel like I've gotten a little bit better about articulating it. But what is the future of creativity, and what is the future of creative work, and what is its place in the world in the 21st century? Um, what are the things that I believe now? is that the concept of a commercial artist, a person who made things, and I mean 
I, I use artists very loosely in terms of, uh, you know, uh, fine art, music, um, uh, literature, um, and I, and, you know, both in, in the popular and, and sort of, um, you know, literary or academic sense. Um, I think th that being a commercial artist was an anomaly in the his mm. history of art, the history of creativity. Um, I think most of the time, uh, artists, creative people have had to um, have a day job or a patron or, or some way of kind of making a living so that they could create stuff that the market economy did not inherently value. Mm -hmm. And all of that um, changed in the 20th century where you had full-time artists, full-time creatives, full-time writers who could, full-time musicians, popular music, who could make a living off of their art uh, and just do that. I, I think we are already seeing that blip in history die uh, with um, the, the, the disintermediation of things like publishing and uh, record labels where the people that would pay these artists to do the things that they could do, um, that, that, that's all getting you know, disrupted and, and, mm -hmm. and it's getting you know, deconstructed. And so I'm very curious what's going to take its place. And I think it's very, very good news. I think that the future of creative work is a bright one. And, and I think that creative people actually have some advantages that they are underutilizing that are becoming more and more valuable uh, in the world today. But the people who are going to succeed are not the ones who are going to sit around and wait for a record label uh, or a museum uh, or some agent or manager to come discover them and share them with the world. And that like actually happened in our lifetime. That actually happened in the past century. It's yeah. it's not the way the world works anymore. And if you're going to share your creative work with the world, um, you're going to have to figure that out. And I think that's that that means you you go back farther than you know kind of the industrial age and look at what are the ways that creative people and business people um, always had kind of an interesting exchange, uh, a dance, and that's just it's something that fascinates me right now, and it's something that I've had to do. It's something that uh, you know it's a dance that you're doing. It's a dance that anybody who's trying to do interesting creative work in the world, but also not go broke is having mm -hmm. to do. And that I find very, very interesting. Well, let's try and paint the picture of that, of that new person, of that new creative that, that, you know, can do this sort of melding of patron and artist. Um, like what does that, what does that person look like? Let's project out a few years and let's try and paint it. Gosh, yeah. Well, uh, let, let's let's talk You're about. Like, I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that um, I, I there is a path that I think of as like self patronage. So, mm. um, if you look at you know Michelangelo, he and many others in the Renaissance um, were funded by the Medici's. If you look at Elvis Presley, <clears throat> uh, he was discovered, uh, you know, by um, uh, Sam Phillips, who ran Sun Records, which is an independent record company. And, and, he, and he was trying to create Elvis. He was trying to find a white guy to sing black music because he knew white people wouldn't, li wouldn't listen to black music. He thought it could be very, very popular, but he knew that he needed a white guy to do it. And Elvis became that guy. Uh, and Sam discovered him and kind of helped make him. I believe that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, what does that look like now? Like, who is your Medici? Who is your Sam Phillips? Uh, I think in some ways it's going to be uh, one of three people. And, and I think that the good news is that there's, there's more than one way to do this. But one way that I've already observed is it's you. You're going to have to be your own manager. Uh, and, and I think more than ever before, you are your own CMO, your own CEO, your own CFO of your creative enterprise mm -hmm. if you want to do creative work and actually have the world care about it. The second model is sort of the partnership model. There's a really interesting book that I may have mentioned to you before called The Powers of Two, which talks about creative collaboration. And people like Lennon and McCartney, um, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, how most creative collaboration doesn't happen, most creativity doesn't happen in isolation, but tends to happen in a collaborative environment and, and the basic you know, unit of that is, is a pair. And uh, so I think you can go out and hire that person or find that person um, they're not going to come find you. I think that's really important. You're going to have to go find them. So the onus is still on you. And then I think the third type of way to do it is communally through a mastermind group, through a, a writer's group, an artist group, where um, you have some sort of collective or commune 
uh, without any sort of cultish undertones. I always get nervous when I say commune. But you've got people <laughs> coming together who are like-minded and you understand that if we all contribute something, everybody gains something. And there are, I mean, there are precedents in history for that. And there are also examples of people doing that right now successfully. And I think all three of those are, are models that can work where you can combine them or do one or all of them. Um, but the, the main thing I believe is that the onus is on you. Nobody's going to come discover you. I live in Nashville. When I drove to my office for this interview, I drove past half a dozen, you know, young 19 year old kids standing in front of a brick wall with a guitar. Truly, I'm not joking here, getting yeah. their, getting their pictures taken, uh, in hopes of a record label, uh, picking them up and paying them a bunch of money, which if they pick them up, they're not going to pay them a bunch of money, assuming that there's going to be a record label. Because uh, I because I have friends working in the music business. They're all calling me saying we had to lay off some more people today. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, I think we, we're believing in this old world paradigm of how art gets out into the world, not understanding that if you want to really do that, you're going to have to get your hands dirty or find a person or community that will help you do that. So you're saying creators will have to, will have to take a proactive stance versus a reactive stance, which is kind of what what you're saying with these guys today is that they're just they're they're waiting instead of actively pursuing. Yeah. And yeah. What, and what's, there's what's, so many channels to leverage too. Go on. Yeah. What's kind of interesting too is if you uh, really get down to it, this isn't this isn't a new thing. This is an old thing. So yeah, Sam Phillips did discover Elvis, but Elvis, you know, it forced his way into Sam's studio and 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 tried to show him that he had what it took. And uh, Michelangelo. Um, was um, really tenacious about getting to work with the Medici's. He wanted it. And I, I think that we read these stories and we go, oh, they just got to be creative and do their art. And, and that was it. And I think anytime you have a major creative breakthrough, um, it is a marriage between creativity and business. It is, a mm. it is a dance between art and the market. And you have to be really careful because when, when they get when they get too um, dependent on each other, I think you can create propaganda, you can create yeah. bad art. Uh, but when they're so far away, you, you basically are a starving artist. And I think that that's a myth. I think that any artist who's done something creative that the world remembered, it was a dance between um, the, the creative side and, and sort of you know the, the market side. How do I get this out in the world so that people care about it? Mm -hmm. So... What are your, let me, let me, let me back up a second. So patreon.com is a website that right. is kind of like Kickstarter, right. but it's specifically focused on a, a subscription almost to a person's art where you will support them. They will come up with uh, art and produce art and, and have a dialogue with a very specific audience who then um, donate a, an X amount of dollars to that person. Um, kind of like a crowdfunded patronage. <laughs> and that's yeah, exactly right. what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I know I sent you some materials about uh, Amanda Palmer, who has been extremely successful um, doing just that. I think she's uh, per she's got I guess on the site they they do a per thing where if you if she comes up with something, she has so many patrons that she'll make thirty three thousand dollars per thing, which is clearly enough money to um, you know live off of. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, after did what were your thoughts on that like? When I sent that to you, like, how do you feel about that? Do you feel this is fitting into that model of what you're trying to, you know, come up with here? Yeah, uh, I think it's cool. I think it's very interesting. Um, uh, I think it's one of the models. I think it's, uh, I think you can have sort of the artist as their own manager, which is, um, you know, you kind of caring about the business side of things and doing that dance yourself. You can have them, you know, the manager model, then you can have the community model. I think in some ways that's the community model. It's saying, uh, I'm going to contribute something to the community and the community is going to support me, which is, I think, typically the way that, that art has, has worked for centuries. If you read Lewis Hyde's book, The Gift, which if you haven't read that, Leonard, you need to get on that. Uh, I, so many books. Because I already told you, this is a great book. Um, you know, Lewis Hyde was this Harvard humanities professor and, you know, he basically says that the job of an artist is to create gifts and give, give them to society. Traditionally, the society would take care of that artist. Um, we now live in this post-industrial era where that doesn't happen, where art is a commodity and we go, what do we get out of it? Mm -hmm. And so I think in some ways, um, you know, Patreon is, uh, is that. Um, 
And in some ways, it's it's just another version of being a commercial artist because you're basically you're selling stuff to the, you know, community. And I don't think it's I don't think any of that is bad. I just think you have to understand that art and commerce they dance together, but they don't live together. They're married, but they sleep in separate beds. If it's going to be, I think, if it's going to be interesting creative work and it's doing its job of giving a gift, you know, in the, you know, Lewis Hyde sort of definition of, of the word, um, and and yet, you know, it's sustainable work. But I certainly think it's very, very interesting. Do you think there's too much of a contract in place then? Like, too, like is setting a, a too high an expectation on the artist, uh, like with Patreon, that the artist may feel, Ugh, if I overstep my bounds, if I try something really scary or new, you know, I'm not going to be able, I'm going to lose half my audience here. Are you saying that that, that contract or that idea is, 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 could be the issue? It could be. I mean, uh, who knows? I mean, you know, we'll have to watch and see how it goes. I'm not critical of it at all. I'm just mm-hmm. watching it going, hmm, this is interesting. I wonder how this will play out. Uh, but if that is, and that may be, um, it's certainly not unprecedented. I mean, you right. know, if an artist was sitting around just kind of doing whatever they want, the patron would go, Hey, come on. Like there was no pure time. Uh, which is really probably my main argument here is there was no pure time when you just got to be an artist and make stuff. The, there was always an agenda. The patron wanted to use you for political benefit. Yeah, they they believed in your art, but there had to be benefit for them. Otherwise, the relationship was not going to continue. And you know, if you had a manager or you know somebody who was uh, paying your bills for you to create so that you could you know get up and going, they had a, a vested interest in that as well. And if you're selling your work directly to the marketplace. Um, if you you know write a bad song or, or take too much of a risk with your next book, you run the risk of people not buying it. And I think artists have always had to live in that tension. I think that tension is good because it's the place from which all, I think, most beautiful things come out. So if this is another way where you can create that tension, I, I think it's I think it's good. But it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Would you say that the perfect model would be uh, you know giving artists complete and utter freedom? So they don't even have to think about that. Like, for instance, we talked about Van Gogh, right? Right. Van Gogh lived a pretty interesting life that did not rely on selling paintings. Like, he just basically was a, a machine that produced amazing work. And then, you know, he you, um, was his, uh, his brother's wife. Who, who was it that, that acted as a patron after he died to help keep his work alive and sell it? Right. So there's like two levels because right. most people want to talk about Van Gogh, how he never sold a painting. Um, without realizing that his brother Theo bankrolled him for 10 years from, I think, age 27 to 37. He, he, he died an early death, he, you know, suicide. And, um, and, but during those 10 years, after he decided, kind of later in life, uh, that he wanted to be an, an artist, um, his brother started paying his bills and he just painted like a madman. Uh, they never did really sell a painting and the Van Gogh house was full of thousands of paintings um, so Vincent died and a couple months later, his brother Theo died, who, who was sort of acting as the, the patron and, and this, the Van Gogh house was full of paintings and it was Johanna Van Gogh, Theo's wife, who ended up selling a lot of the paintings and bringing, uh, Vincent's, um, art to the world. Uh, yeah, I think that's a pretty good model. Um, I think, I don't know if there's a best model cause they're, they're all contextual. It's just based on. What does the market want? What can the artists do? And and there's all and the patron is the person who works as an intermediary between artist and market. And so, uh, you know, Theo is is hustling. And what is he doing? He's selling commercial art. He's an art dealer, and he's making a living selling the art that the market wants to fund his brother, who's creating, um, you know, impressionist art that people don't quite, you know, the market economy doesn't quite understand at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and yet Theo believes in it, and so he's funding it. And of course, you know, 100, 200 years, you know, 150 years later, um, you know, we all sort of recognize, you know, the, the genius in it. I think that a good model is, um, is, is a model like that, that the Van Goghs have, where you've got the artist, you've got the kind of the, the banker, the CFO, and then you've got the marketer, you've got Johanna. And none of this yeah. was intentional, but it's like a very small creative collaboration where you've got these yeah. three people with these three unique gift sets and they're all one's the money person one's the creative person and one is the you know salesperson. that's yeah. a pretty interesting model things like um you know sort of crowdsourcing or, or crowdfunding uh scare me just because you have to keep a lot of people happy with the van yep. gogh model like uh 
you just got to keep three people happy. Yeah. You know, it sounds to me like you're discovering these roles, these not archetypes, but these these various responsibilities that need to be fulfilled in order for, you know, uh, an artist to be successful and create, you know, work and, and have a sustainable career. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to, <laughs> to hearing your solutions to, yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> to how a single person or how a, a small group of people can fulfill those and and find great success. It's actually it's fascinating. And I, I, I love it. Well, um, thanks. It's uh, I never do this. this is, I've never, you know, publicly talked about a book idea before I've even like finished the proposal. So well, I, I thank you. Hopefully, for hopefully it was helpful. Having the courage to do that on yeah. this podcast. All right. So I, I, I thank you so much for being on the show. What, where can people find out more about you? Well, thank you. Thanks for the work that you're doing, Leonard. It's Absolutely. A, a pleasure to um, be a part of it. And uh, so admire you and, and, you know, what you're putting out in the world. Um, yeah, you can find me at my blog, goingswriter.com. That's where I try to share my best ideas. You can sign up for free email newsletter list, get some free stuff there, including, uh, you know, that, that marketing piece, how do I get my art out into the world is something that I actually like and talk about a lot. So mm-hmm. if, if, you know, you have creative work that you want to share with the world, um, you can find out more about me and about that at goingswriter.com. You'll also get a free copy or a free, yeah, uh, two chapters to the art of work. Um, Mm -hmm. when you sign up for the email list. So lots of good stuff there. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, Jeff, thank you. And until next time. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. For more episodes and giveaways, head over to www.bleedinginc.fm. That's www.bleedinginc.fm. If you want to help me out even more, you can go check out my book, Modern Rituals, The Wayward Three, on Amazon today. And also, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a software guy and I make tools for writers. Check out jslauthor.com. That's for J.S. Leonard, jslauthor.com. There you can sign up for my mailing list, get free tools, and all kinds of awesome stuff. Thanks for listening. See you next time.